That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Is it time to expose the women who are still celebrating the Confederacy? No, seriously, that is the headline of an absolutely brilliant piece published over at Daily Beast by Callie Holloway who is on the line with us right now. Callie is a senior director with the Make It Right Project, senior writer at the Independent Media Institute, who also syndicates the stuff that I write, like the piece that's on Alternate, and co-curator of Theater of the Resist at the Met Museum. IndependentMediaInstitute.org is the website. You can tweet her at Callie Holloway, F-T-W, K-A-L-I-H-O-L-L-O-W-A-Y. Do I have all that right, Callie? Yes. And am I saying your first name right? Callie, yes. Callie, great. Okay, thank you. It's nice to meet you and great to have you on the program. Tell us about the United Daughters of the Confederacy. Where do I start? I think the most important thing to know about them is that they are the group that single-handedly put up the vast majority of Confederate monuments around this country, and they're the reason that so many of them remain standing. They were founded in 1894. Originally, they sort of decided to take up the cause of returning the bodies of Confederate soldiers that were left on the battlefield and taking them back to war-torn and the incredibly poor South and making sure they had proper burials. And then in the post-Reconstruction era, they went from memorializing soldiers with these very modest statues that they put up in cemeteries to creating these very grand monuments that we're familiar with today. So arguably, it started out as kind of a, I don't want to say benign movement, but at least one easily understood First of all, how many of them are there broadly? How are they geographically distributed? And what percentage of them are there because of this movement? So there are, bear with me, because there's some differences in numbers, and it depends on what kind of Confederate monument we're talking about. So Confederate markers overall, according to the STLC, there are roughly 1,700 around the country. That includes every kind of marker schools, streets, townships, buildings. There are specifically, and when we talk about statues and monuments, 700 or so, and 450 of those were put up by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. But let me also say that that number shifts because as we count Confederate monuments and as this conversation has 
grown in volume, we've gotten better numbers. So the SCLC originally estimated there were 1,500 monuments and markers in 2016. In 2018, they came back with the 1,700 number that we have. So we're getting better and better numbers all the time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they've been going in the wrong direction. Yeah. I'm just fascinated by these organizations that seek to tie themselves to our past. My mom was just obsessed with her family genealogy and discovered that a relative of ours, a direct kind of grandfather kind of relative of mine, fought in the Revolutionary War. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a member of the Sons of the American Revolution. Um, mm-hmm. They don't run around saying we all should still hate England or, you know, we should return to the era of slavery. Um, right. It's more like, you know, well, actually, I've never been to a meeting, so I, I can't say what this is like. But, right. but the literature I get from them is basically here's who died in our group and here's when we're having a picnic, you know, that kind of stuff. How did the United Women of the Confederacy or the United Daughters of the Confederacy, how did they transform into this pro-monument group? And where are they at right now? Are they still around? Well, I think it's really important to sort of think about what was happening at the time. So. After Reconstruction, you have a tremendous amount of anger in the South about modest civil rights gains that have been made by African Americans. You have the North removing its troops suddenly, essentially leaving formerly black enslaved folks to fend for themselves. You have the first occurrence of the Ku Klux Klan. And this is the era in which we see the UDC really digging in its heels in terms of propagating the myth of the lost cause. And just to describe that for any listeners who aren't familiar with it. The Lost Cause is a a historical retelling of history that essentially states that the Civil War was not fought over slavery. It also recasts slavery as a benevolent institution that benefited both the enslaver and the enslaved. It pretends that the South was basically an agrarian paradise that was the victim of a tyrannical industrial North. And it also casts the Confederate cause as a sort of valiant cause that unfortunately did not succeed. And they have been incredibly successful at propagating that idea. There are recent uh, polls that show that 41% of Americans don't believe that slavery was the central cause of the Civil War, which no serious historian would ever argue that point. We have the actual words of the founders of the Confederacy. And they've been incredibly good at sending out this message. They did a fantastic job of creating what they dubbed living monuments, which is children who they educated mostly throughout the South. They vetted textbooks and made sure that there were no textbooks that did not further the lost cause idea uh, that made it into Southern schools. Yeah, I've got just a real quick story about that. I grew up in Lansing, Michigan, and went to Michigan mm-hmm. public schools, and we learned that the Civil War was caused by slavery. Yeah. I remember reading the South Carolina Articles of Secession as part of a history class in, like, fifth grade or something. And we moved to Atlanta in the early 1980s, and one of my kids came home from, I think, maybe fifth or sixth grade when we were living in the Atlanta suburbs. And I was like, well, what did you learn at school today? And my child said, well, we learned all about the War of Northern Aggression. And I was like, the War of Northern yeah. Aggression? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it was like, whoa. And that was a public school in a relatively upscale white suburb in northern Atlanta. So they're still around? They're still promoting this stuff? They tend to say that most of these books went out of circulation in the late 70s. But I spoke to a woman when I was in the midst of writing the Daily Beast piece who had been in high school. I think she was a sophomore in 2008 in Virginia. And a UDC textbook was in her school. And it had 
all of the lost cause points laid out in, you know, kind of the most blatant ways. And yeah, there was a sort of wistful sentimentality for the antebellum South. The UDC at this point, by its own account, has roughly 25,000 members. And, you know, they don't make it into our conversations very often when we talk about Confederate monuments. They tend to keep a very low profile. They aren't very responsive to press when people call them about this stuff or activists who are fighting to take down Confederate monuments. They haven't been responsive to activists who have actually protested outside their headquarters in Virginia. But what they do is they very quietly two jurisdictions that try to take down Confederate monuments. So while most people think that they are either a defunct organization or an organization that essentially probably just sits around and it's a bunch of old women who are talking about the South but not doing very much to keep up what their organization stood for in the past, that's actually not true. They go to great pains and great lengths to make sure that those monuments remain standing, which means they still exert a fair amount of social and political influence. That's remarkable. And people can learn more about that with your piece over at the Daily Mm -hmm. Beast, Time to Expose the Women Still Celebrating the Confederacy. We're talking with Callie Holloway. And I'm wondering if you could tell us about Make It Right Project that you're the senior director of. Sure. You know, one of the ideas we had was that we were aware that there was all this great work going on to take down Confederate monuments, but there wasn't a lot of You know, the nature of kind of taking down a local monument is that it's a very sort of siloed and local effort. And there wasn't a lot of contact between those activists in different places. And so we sort of hope to fill that role. The idea is that we're kind of this umbrella project that's dedicated to taking down Confederate monuments around the country and really to telling the truth about history, which is kind of what this whole thing is about, right? Mm. acknowledging a part of history that Confederate monuments deny and erase and rewrite with a false narrative. And we bring together several groups that have been engaged in this work for a while, but maybe weren't connected to each other from historians who are Civil War experts and who have been writing about the truth to activists who have been doing this work on the ground locally for very long periods of time. And, you know, writers, thinkers, journalists, obviously. So it's uh, artists. uh, We think there's a lot of art action that could really be great around this. It helps create a space when people's eyes otherwise glaze over to to let people know about these issues. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the idea is that we're kind of the connective tissue between these groups and a national group that's going to be focusing very specifically on taking down these statues and monuments. And again, I cannot emphasize enough because the argument is always that to remove these monuments is erasing history. The monuments themselves were put up to erase history. To take them down as a corrective and a form of truth-telling. Yeah, amen. Is there a website, I'm assuming? There is. For the um, Make it right there's, there's makeitrightproject.org. Okay. And yeah, definitely great. visit us. And if you're interested in taking part, reach out. That's great. Callie Holloway, she is the senior director of the Make It Right Project, a senior writer with the Independent Media Institute, co-curator of the Theater of the Resist at the Met Museum, independentmediainstitute.org, and makeitright.org. Kelly, you're doing great work. Thanks so much for dropping by today. It's great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. My pleasure. Absolutely. I've been going off on the GOP as the largest threat to democracy since the Civil War. I think that that's absolutely true. And, uh, you know, let's get some of your thoughts. Tony in Huntsville, Alabama. Hey, Tony, what's on your mind? Tom, how you doing, buddy? Good. What's up? Listen, uh, as a person who did five years in the prison system here in Alabama, Oh I can tell you about the slavery thing firsthand. We go out there, we pick tomatoes, squash, okra. That stuff ends up in Kroger and Walmart. They pay us 25 cents an hour. They stand in the tower with the long 12-gauge shotgun trained on you while you work. 
during my tenure were and in prison, I saw two men get shot because you're working on the line and you have to use the bathroom. And if you're new and you think you can go to a tree or something and use the bathroom, they shoot you because you came from in between the imaginary lines that all the old guys know. Wow. But the new guys don't know. And they say, inmate, and everybody drops down. And they just, boom, kill you right on the spot and bury you on the hill. Look, this thing is about money. The racism is going to work. Black people had Obama, so white people got Trump, and they're glad, and they're not going to relinquish the fact that we had Obama. We loved Obama. They loved Trump. It's always worked. It's always going to work. The yeah. problem is the private prison system is the key in Alabama. All they have in Alabama is agriculture and prison, and they want people of color to have so much time. I was watching MSNBC. They were talking about Paul Manafort is going to get eight years. Eight years? Hell, I got a 20 for some dope. Wow. This man is colluding with Russians, and he might get eight years? Well, not only that, the judge that was the judge in the Manafort case, Judge Ellis, he had previously had a guy come before him who was convicted of a $20 million tax fraud case. Manafort's was only $18 million, and he gave the guy seven months in jail. This is ridiculous. This is the craziest thing I ever heard in my life. This is why this stuff doesn't work, Tom. Yeah. Because an upscale white man, nothing happens to him. He can do anything in the world. A black man sell a rock, and he's going to get no less than 20 years hard labor. And Jefferson Sessions is the worst man in the world, Tom. He's one of the reasons that the people here in Alabama are suffering because if you're a person of color, they're going to make sure you get the long haul so that these shareholders and these companies can make lots and lots and lots of money on you long term. We call it going up for parole. We call it going up for denial. Right. Remarkable. Tony, thank you for sharing your story with us. I truly appreciate it. And this is such grim stuff here in the United States. We need to awaken from the horrors of this and reform our penal system, reform our criminal justice system, and fix the racism in this country. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. We need to explicitly renounce the racism in this country. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman Podcast, brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work, they'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 506 or lot 622, simple number on it. And you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world 
and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. Here's the video clip of this woman uh, trying to talk down the homeless guy, but she's also trying to talk down these two cops who are holding their guns on this guy. It's just in some ways very inspiring and in some ways a tragic commentary on the state of policing in the United States. Here it is. See, she keeps saying it's not worth dying for. She's talking to him. But she's also talking to the police, and, and, and finally, you know, they put their guns away. But she walked literally between a police officer's gun and this guy he was going to shoot. I mean, talk about a hero. It's just absolutely extraordinary. So, and, and just a heads up, uh, I've got this new piece up. It just went up at alternate.org. Here's how Republicans hijacked a bill. This is the Help America Vote Act, of course, designed to help America vote and used it to block people from voting. And this is why we have discrepancies. I think this explains redshift. You know, I used to think it was voting machines, but I couldn't figure out because there was redshift happening in places where they weren't using the really cheesy voting machines. In some cases, you had redshift happening in places where they weren't using voting machines at all. And so how is that? Well, it turns out it's voter suppression. The Republicans, uh, Republican secretaries of state throwing people off the voting rolls after throwing them off the voting rolls. They come back and vote provisional ballots, which don't get countered. And as a consequence of that, you know, here's where we're at. So, you know, anyhow, let's pick up some of your phone calls. Laura in Santa Rosa, California. Hey, Laura, what's on your mind today? Fiscal conservatism was code for welfare, right? Well, it was code for taking, taking, quote, handouts away from black people. Yes. And you were absolutely right. And today, the current neutralizing term that was spewed by Steve Bannon, remember, is called identity politics. Yeah. Remember, he said if the left focus on identity and race, we can use economic nationalism, still code, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what young people have to realize. Hillary Clinton and Nancy Pelosi are, are both feared because they are effective, they are competent, they get the job done, and that's what the right wing are afraid of. And they're also women, and, and a large part of the right wing being uh, anchored in paternalistic authoritarianism and hierarchy are, are frankly shaken 
by the idea that a person who's not supposed to be part of that hierarchy, i.e. a woman, actually is controlling parts of that hierarchy. Right. And so my advice to, the, to all of us who are progressive, can we please come together as a collective, allowing Nancy Pelosi and everyone who's experienced to get the job done, Let's get past the 2020 elective. Let's get the toxicity of the Trump administration out of office, get our democracy back on track, and then we can all focus on growing and learning and doing what we need to do from our ideology. But right now is not the time to divide. Yeah, amen. Our progress. Amen. Let's maximize this progress that we have and focus on getting the job done. Well, people I, have to go. Yeah, and that's why I was calling out the five white guys, you know, this gang of Democrats in the House who take large amounts of corporate money, you know, particularly from the industries that would be, shall we say, adversely affected by Medicare for All. They have deserted Nancy Pelosi to the point, frankly, I think they've deserted the Democratic Party to the point that, you know, she's having to cut deals with Republicans you know, to to maintain our speakership and, and you know, this uh, super majority to for tax increases in the bottom 80 percent thing. This is, you know, clearly designed to avoid Medicare for all. I don't think we're going right. to see Medicare for all in the next two years anyway. And if we can right. have a genuine blue wave in 2020 and get a Democratic president and a, a democratically controlled Senate, as well as keep the House, then there's a good chance of it happening. And whatever that legislation is, will be swept up, you know, away along with it. It's right. not like this is a constitutional amendment, like the right-wingers did to us here in Oregon, where we actually amended our constitution to say that the state legislature has to have a supermajority to pass tax increases. This is just an old Republican trick. And now we've got a group of Democrats who are basically saying to Nancy Pelosi, you do this or you're not speaker. And if she's not speaker, I'm really concerned that the Democratic Party is not going to be able to get stuff done because she does know how to get things done. So, anyhow, Laura, thank you so much for the call. So well said on every level possible. So, a lot going on here. But let's pick up some of your phone calls. Hello, Harriet. Can you tell me the town in Texas you're calling from? Lano. It's spelled with two L. Ah, okay, Lano. L- yeah, L-L-A-N-O. Yeah. Okay, so what's up? What's on your mind? Well, uh, I've got this question that I need to have an answer to. I'm worried and concerned that the word democracy, you know, the word itself, Mm -hmm. has been sort of uh, a threat. Like in my family, when I mentioned, I'm glad you voted this year, son, in our democracy and participated in our democracy. And he texted back, we're not a democracy. We're a republic. Right. Is that what he said? Right. Yeah. yeah that's what he said. You know where that came from? And I said, no, I don't. OK, that 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 talking point was the uh, Joe McCarthy had two big talking points and the and the and the hardcore right wing faction in the 1950s of the Republican Party had two major talking points. The first one was never refer to the Democratic Party by the name that Thomas Jefferson gave it, the, t- the Democratic Party, because that sounds democratic, which sounds nice. So always call it the Democrat Party and always emphasize the last three letters, R-A-T. Oh. So that's why uh, if you watch Fox News for even five minutes, you will discover that absolutely everybody says the Democrat Party. There is no such thing as the Democrat Party. It doesn't even exist. It's the Democratic Party. But that, that was his first talking point. And his second talking point was never talk about America as a democracy because that sounds like Democrat. Instead, call it a republic, because that sounds like Republican. Oh, 
that's, that's where it came exactly from. what I was thinking. Yeah, that worried me. And I, I didn't want to argue with him. I just said, well, you're participating in the Democratic system. Yes, my, my response would be we live in a Democratic Republic, and it, which is yeah, true. Yeah. And if you want to be super accurate about it, you can say we live in a constitutionally limited Democratic Republic. But I mean, I do, these are I just splitting irrelevant right. hairs. Okay, good. Thank you for helping me with that. I appreciate that so much. And I'm guessing he's listening that. to right wing talk radio if he's saying that we're not a democracy, we're a republic. That's, you know, you really only hear that kind of rhetoric from the hard right fringe. You will not hear that okay. on 60 Minutes or Meet the Press or anything like that. Okay, that's it then. Okay, well, I appreciate your help, Tom, and, and that kind of calms my concerns down. You need to help him detoxify from right-wing hate radio because I guarantee you, it's either there or Fox News. He's getting that, Harriet. Harriet, it's great talking with you. Thanks so much for watching us there in Texas on Free Speech TV. On the line with us is Francis Causey. Francis is the uh, director of a new movie, The Long Shadow. The website is thelongshadowfilm.com. You can tweet her at F Causey, C-A-U-S-E-Y, or at Long Shadow Doc, as in documentary. Francis, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's great to be back with you. It's been a while since we talked. I want to play just a little, it's 23 seconds, just a 23 second clip from your film. And then on the backside of that, you can tell us all about it. It's going to have to be fairly quick. We're running out of time here, but here's the clip. Since why the United States is such an advanced country is because of not only slavery, but the slave trade. We know that slavery was financed from places like New York, Rhode Island, Newport, and Boston. One of the reasons Wall Street was created in the first place was to finance the slave industry. So it was pretty amazing stuff. Francis, tell us about the movie. And the film really is about the impact of Jim Crow and slavery on the country. We connect the dots to the present, Tom. And there's some, as you say about the film, there's just this unbelievable hidden history that's unknown to people that really casts a light on the evil that slavery did upon our country. And I felt like as a white person that somebody needed to step up and say, okay, we've had this terrible history, and we know that everybody knows in their guts that it impacts the present. And we explain the exact context for things like this bombing and the other context for the political racialized environment that we see ourselves in today. I couldn't stop watching. I started out thinking, I'll just dip into this. TheLongShadowFilm.com. Is this going to be in theatrical distribution or is it going to be? Yeah, yeah. Actually, about 1% of docs get theatrical and we did. And so that you can find our screenings and how to get the film in your town or your school at TheLongShadowFilm.com. Just scroll down and reach out to us and we'll make sure you see it. Yeah. And let me encourage people to check this out. And Frances narrates this through her life growing up in the South. And I was just blown away. I think you've created a masterpiece here, Frances. And Tom, thank you. It means a lot coming from you. Oh, no, it's it's absolutely sincere. And I, I wish you the very, very best with it. And uh, maybe you. in a couple of weeks, you can come back and on a day that's a little less news heavy, we can talk about it a little more. If that's all right with you. Great. I'd love that. Okay, thanks. Frances Causey, she's Take the care. director of The Long Shadow. The, the website is The Long Shadow Film. Com. Check it out. Thank you. Thank you, Francis. We'll be right back.
I've never endorsed a weight loss product, but that was before my brilliant wife, Louise, had such a great experience with Ridgizone. So good that she shared it with my producer, Sean. Sean, in your own words, talk about what you love most about Ridgizone. I've been frustrated for years, struggling with yo-yo dieting. I was really excited when I saw the results Louise had with Ridgizone. She looks amazing. I also like the fact that Ridgizone is based on university research that found a molecule that eases appetite and cravings so you eat less. Plus, Ridgizone is an FDA-accepted product designed to boost levels of that molecule along with your metabolism so you stop craving the wrong foods and burn calories faster. I'm excited to get my appetite and cravings under control so I can lose weight before the holidays. Stay tuned. Amen. Thanks, Sean. Listen, when diet and exercise aren't enough and you want to lose the weight you've been struggling to lose, get non-prescription Ridgizone. While supplies last, use the promo code TOM, T-H-O-M, and receive 30% off plus free shipping. Go to tryriduzone.com. That's tryriduzone.com. Tryriduzone.com. It's the Tom Harbin University Book Club. Today we're reading from Minority Leader, How to Lead from the Outside and Make Real Change by Stacey Abrams. This is from Chapter 1, although the introduction is fascinating too, where she talks about road scholarships and stuff, but this is Chapter 1. I sit in the living room, a cozy space, warm in the early summer. I'm perched on the edge of a sofa next to Valerie, the home's owner, a lovely black woman in her late 40s. Across from us, seated close together on a wide settee met for one, are her two children, a son and a daughter. Politicians rarely visit their streets, which are nestled in a poorer community in South Georgia. Valerie beams with pride that both her children are headed to college in the fall. David, 17, plans to study criminology. Maya, 18, her belly round with her first child, intends to become a middle school teacher. Both newly graduated from high school, Maya will give birth in mere weeks and begin college months later, an unwed teen mother. Her intended school is more than a three hours north of her home, so her mother will raise her newborn baby while she starts her freshman year. Valerie speaks matter-of-factly about the coming challenge, raising a new child just as hers leaves the nest. Still, she is determined that both her children pursue college degrees that she never received. Maya, the mother-to-be, wonders how she'll do so far away from home and her baby. Yet in the next breath, she explains how college will be the best for her and her child. Their future success rests upon her. I've come to their home as part of my campaign for governor, so I asked Valerie what she expects of someone like me. What can I do to help make lives like hers better? In her soft voice, she replies, she just wants options for financial aid for her children. They will succeed, she says, if they can afford to stay in school. As I look around the modest home passed down through the generations, I understand both the pride and the desperation tangled in her response. She got them through and has given them the tools to carve out better lives for themselves. We chat more about the worries she's lived with all those years, our discussion turning to the crime and poverty in their neighborhood. Then I ask Valerie what she wants. At first, all I get in response is a quizzical look to suggest I need to reconsider my bid for higher office. I repeat, what do you want for you? What secret dream do you have for yourself? Her confused expression turns to one of surprise. I don't know, she tells me. I've been a cashier at the Piggly Wiggly for 20 years. You must want something, I probe, something you'd like to do for you. A daycare, she admits quietly. I'd like to start a daycare center for unwed mothers like my daughter so more girls can finish school and pursue their dreams. But that ambition is beyond her. Her body language, her tone of voice, her averted gaze speak louder than her words. I press her, but she demurs with a smile. Let's just see what happens if you win the governor's job, she says. Valerie's house in South Georgia is not too different from the squat red brick house where I grew up on South Street in Gulfport, Mississippi. An oak tree grew out in our front yard, shadowing the front sidewalk, forbidding grass to grow beneath its shade. 
Pink azaleas bloomed each spring from bushes that flanked the front door. Our rented house and the others set close by teemed with children, all black, all working class. We played in our postage-stamped yards, make-believing the fantastical. Superhero exploits, cops and robbers. As we got older, we'd talk about moving to New Orleans or living in one of the mansions along the beachfront that lay less than five miles away, across the railroad tracks that ran in between our neighborhood and the more wealthy environs. We dreamed of more while our parents' lives centered around survival and making it from paycheck to paycheck. Instinctively, we understood that more had to be possible, even if we didn't know what to do to get there. These imaginings, these desires, are the roots of ambition. As adults, like Valerie, we tend to edit our desires until they fit our construction of who we're supposed to become. In such a world, I wouldn't dare dream of running for higher office, for mayor, or governor, or president. At least for now, Valerie sees herself retiring in 20 more years from Piggly Wiggly as a cashier, rather than as a small business owner who helps the community raise its children. From our brief meeting, I could see she had the fire, albeit of a low burn, of a minority leader. She had ambition, she had vision, but she didn't have the faith, and understandably so. Whether we come from working-class neighborhoods or grow up comfortably middle-class, minorities rarely come of age explicitly thinking about what we want and how to get it. People already in power almost never have to think about whether they belong in the room, much less if they would be listened to once outside. These men, and they are usually men and typically white, do not have to grapple with low expectations based on gender or race or class. Ambition for them begins with the reminiscences of old times and older friendships or newer alliances. The ends have already been decided. Only the means are to be discussed. Most potential minority leaders feel the same lack of faith Valerie had, at least at some point in their evolution. We may not know how to get the first job, let alone make it to the big chair. We don't know how to take the leap from accepting our fates to actually changing them, and not just a little, but radically. Then there are those who simply don't know what they want. The drive to achieve burns inside, often without a clear target. We want to be something, but what that is remains hazy. Often we cannot articulate our goals because they lie just beyond the reach of who we're supposed to be. Ambition's scale is irrelevant. What holds us back is not scope, it's fear. And because we don't know what to call our dreams, don't know how to make them happen, or are pretty sure we'll be disappointed, we just stand still. But becoming a minority leader demands that we embrace ambition as our due. Stacey Abrams. Francis Causey is on the line with us. We had a brief conversation, but it was just way too brief, and I wanted to revisit this. She is the director of a new movie called The Long Shadow, a new documentary, and it is opening on Friday of this week, the day after Thanksgiving, in Los Angeles. And Francis, welcome back to the program. Tom, it's great to be back with you. I was just listening to your air check, waiting to come on. And every time I'm on this program, I learn something new from you. Oh. So thanks for having me back on. Well, thank you. So tell us about the Long Shadow film. Well, I mean, Tom, I made the film that I couldn't find, right, which is an honest, albeit hidden history of the role that not ending slavery at our founding the role that that played. And of course, what was a part of that was the disproportionate power of the political South, obviously, right? And so for the first 250 years of the country, we have this terrible institution, this hidden history that's kind of been whitewashed out of our school textbooks. Growing up in the South, you know, I knew something was deeply, deeply wrong. And it was only later when I became a journalist that I knew that I had to investigate the roots of the role of slavery and how it connects 
to anti-black racism today. And then, and very tragically, I discovered in the process of my research that my own ancestor, who was the revolutionary governor of Virginia, actually encoded slavery, which pretty much guaranteed that the South would have this political power. And of course, as we know, they yielded it horribly throughout our history and even continue to do today with things like the governor's race in Georgia. What does encoded mean? So basically, Thomas Jefferson came to him and said, okay, let's take these British laws and make them into American law once they left Great Britain, broke from Great Britain. So basically, he sent the message that, and they built these laws, one colony, one state at a time, they made it into law, encoded meaning make into law. Mm. The thing that I was most blown away by, by watching the movie, I should say, you and I have worked together. I narrated a movie that, or a documentary that you did. Remind me of the title. Heist. Heist, that's right. The American Dream. That's right. You know, it was a couple of years ago. It's a brilliant movie. And where could people find that if they wanted? Sure, absolutely. I think it's still up on YouTube, Mm -hmm. but you could go to heist dash the movie.com i think that's the best place to do it yeah. yeah and it's a great movie about the whole meltdown of the economy and the banksters who robbed us and the whole structural thing but the thing that blew my mind about your movie this new movie the long shadow the website is the long the thing that really amazed me about it was how personal it was for you and you know you just mentioned that you had an ancestor who was involved in all this but You walk us through the movie. You walk us through all these interactions with various people. You tell us all these stories. A, what did you learn from that experience? And B, how troubling, how difficult was this to put together? Well, I mean, it's a great question. First of all, as a child, witnessing all these terrible things that I did growing up in the South, most particularly the grinding just tragic poverty of the disenfranchised African-American population in the South. And so I wanted to understand the genesis of that. I wanted to understand how that came about. But I also knew that I had been plied both in my history books and in my culture and in my community. I had been plied with all of these stereotypes about African-Americans that I knew weren't true. And so what happened is I went after stories of incredible triumph and perseverance and courage on behalf of the African community in America and then later the African-American community. And so what I found in particularly three stories that are portrayed in the film, which is free black Canadians who left San Francisco and became instant citizens in the 1850s era, became instant citizens in Canada and what that meant for them. I interviewed the descendants of slaves who were freed by a white landowner named Robert Carter III. And I profiled their descendants here in the U.S. and what it meant for them to be free, to be a free people in the late 1700s. Right. And then sadly, I also interviewed the family of a gentleman who was killed in a racially motivated mass shooting at the Lockheed Martin aircraft wing plant in Meridian, Mississippi, which is where my producer is from, Meridian, Mississippi. And so what we wanted to do, Tom, was connect the dots of this history and history. I know you're a history lover as much as I am. And we really get, we feel the fabric of our DNA when we look back in history. And these historical 
moments in our time have had consequences. And so I really wanted to explain how things like Ferguson and how disproportionate police brutality was happening in our country. I mean, it really brings together the entire story of why our country is struggling right now uh, and why a guy like Donald Trump, quite honestly, was elected. We're not in a post-racial society, as you and I both know. And what the election of Barack Obama did, this infection had always been there, but now it's the country is in a fever now with the infection, and we've never dealt with this. And right. we've got to deal with it. We need a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We need a national narrative on how to deal with this. And we did it. We did it with the Japanese-Americans after World War II, Uruguay. The country of Uruguay has done it with a national policy of reparations. So it's possible for us to deal with it. But we have to understand this hidden history. The other thing that I found extraordinary was here's a white woman making a documentary. And I mean, you're a brilliant documentary maker. And you know, as I mentioned, you've made a number of films. But here's a white woman making a very personal on camera documentary that is about black slavery, about African slavery in part or in large part, especially in these days when we've got, you know, conversations about, you know, should white people play Asians and television and things like that. I mean, talk to me about that experience. I know exactly what you're talking about. And how could a white woman talk about slavery? Right. And I, I grappled with this. Our whole team grappled with this as we were in edit, you know, and what I my answer to that is and I've been I've been criticized somewhat in the liberal community for making the film. And what I say to them is, which is what our social impact producer, an African-American woman, Maria Judas, said to me. She said, Francis, she said, only a white woman could have made this story. Because what it is is a story about white oppression. It's a story about institutionalizing white privilege. And it's about time a white person came up and said, hey, you know, we've got to look at this history, right? Mm. You know, we're not in a post-racial society. And so I welcome that debate, and I think people really need to see the film. But the film is being absolutely embraced by the African-American community for that exact reason. I would certainly think so. We're talking with Frances Causey. She's the director of The Long Shadow. The website is thelongshadowfilm.com. And it seems to me like the one piece that you left out in your description of what the movie's about and why a white woman can make the movie is that, at least for me, seeing this through your eyes, I did not grow up in the South. I lived in Atlanta for 13 years as an adult, but I didn't grow up in the South, was the lies that white people told each other, the lies that our white institutions like public education, and a lot of this being influenced by things like, you know, the Daughters of the Confederacy, the United Daughters of the Confederacy, we had a guest on talking about that. And as a white person confronting the lies and stories and stereotypes that that we were raised with. Right. Why wouldn't we want to tell that story? Right. But what's but what's happened institutionally is the far right, which we have chronicled, which you talk about in heist. Right. They captured the media machine. Right. The mainstream media machine, but also more insidiously early on in the 50s with Supreme Court cases, they basically said, you can't inject race when you talk about certain things. Well, of course, this was a, a smokescreen. This was a cover for them because you absolutely need to talk about race. And, and, you know, you just look at the argument over affirmative action. I mean, it's crazy. Why would you do away with affirmative action when you've never really compensated African-Americans for their ancestors' experience in this country? I mean, we haven't even started the debate 
and you know about reparations the right yeah. was not yet yeah, reparations i mean it, it could be things like you know even reparations has become a dirty word well what about just redirecting some property taxes from wealthy affluent white neighborhoods into black neighborhoods with enhancing the school systems right. I mean, we, but we need to study it we need to understand the impact of jim crow and slavery on our society today and only then will we get somewhere and you have done a brilliant absolutely brilliant analysis of this francis causey the director of the long shadow the website the long you can tweet her at f quasi c-a-u-s-e-y or long shadow doc francis thanks for being with us thanks for being on tom great great talking with you thank you so much Imagine the panic that swept over this dad. He was working late when he got an alert on his smartphone. His Blink motion-activated security camera picked up something. He opens the Blink app and views a video clip of a man peering through his kitchen window. He calls 911 and alerts his wife. Preventing situations like this is what Blink is all about. The point of having a home security system is to help alert you before some creep breaks into your home, not after. Blink motion-activated HD cameras are wire-free, set up in minutes, and run on batteries that last up to two years. And Blink's live feed option lets you monitor what's happening at home anytime, anywhere from your smartphone. No contracts, no subscriptions, and Blink even works with Alexa. Here's the deal. Get your Blink camera system starting at less than $100. No contracts or subscriptions. Visit blinkprotect.com slash tom, T-H-O-M, for details. blinkprotect.com slash tom, T-H-O-M. blinkprotect.com slash tom. Blink is an Amazon company. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Rich in Indiana. Hey, Rich, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. Thanks. I was reminded as Francis Causey was talking about the long shadow, my neighbor in Society Hill, Philadelphia, back about, I guess, 2006, did a movie and a book. Katrina Brown wrote and then had this film traces of the trade which was her family's involvement in the slave trade through their family in connecticut and it went back across the atlantic to the castle um i'm forgetting its name but the first lady was there uh not too long ago and signed the guest book and said what a lovely time she had and thanks for posting her there but um Hmm. Just as another resource for folks, if they're interested, and I would also be interested to compare and contrast the two to see how a depth of understanding has come in the more than a decade since Katrina did her Traces of the Trade. Yeah. Just sharing. Yeah, it's good information. And Rich, you know, spot on. And I really have to check out Francis's film, The Long Shadow film.com it's remarkable it's just this woman really knows how to make a documentary and this is a really really important topic rich thanks a lot for the call good talking with you our book today is taking bullets terrorism and black life in 21st century america confronting white nationalism supremacy privilege plutocracy and oligarchy a poet's representation and challenge by hockey r uh, Madhuburi. He writes, uh, this is from the chapter, page 27, the chapter, Terror in the Midst of Prayer and Empire. In our perpetual state of national mourning, where our eyes are watered out and our hearts cease to heal at the rate the Creator meant them to, we hold hands in profound silence as we remember the Mother Emanuel Nine of Charleston, South Carolina, those nine mothers, fathers, sisters, and brothers. 
Even before burying, before black earth covered their caskets, too many ministers, media pundits, and plain white and black folks downgraded the terror that quickened their deaths of our finest uh, in this land to the mental illness and race hatred, in quotes, of a single young white man. He may have acted alone, but he was not alone in his thinking, encouragement, gathering of arms, warped consciousness, confirmation, or ahistorical views, and yeses from the millions in the nation who proudly wear and display the Confederate flag above their hearts and fly it in all of its traitorous glory over a state capitol and other institutions. Again, we find ourselves at war with history and culture, entertaining another call for a national conversation on race and a president weary of trying to make sense of and comfort the grief-stricken nation with words from the highest office of the land. This was written while Obama was president. These are the facts, not an opinion or the ignorant ranting of compromised preachers and television pundits. A 21-year-old white man, a citizen of South Carolina, walked into the sacred and spiritual home of the Emanuel African Methodist Episcopal Church of Charleston, the historic home of black liberation fighter Denmark Vesey, and fatally killed nine of its members, including the pastor, during Bible study. This was a pure act of domestic terrorism. A modern-day lynching by a young white nationalist who coolly and calmly assassinated nine black members of Mother Emanuel. Domestic violence and acts of terrorism are on the rise in the United States, as detailed by Charles Kurzman and Daniel Shanzer in their New York Times op-ed, The Other Threat, where they state that, quote, the main terrorist threat in the United States is not from violent Muslim extremists, but from right-wing extremists, end quote. In their national research, local police agencies across the country identified, quote, the militias, neo-Nazis, and sovereign citizens as the major threat the nation faces in regard to extremism. End quote. All of this is homegrown with internal connections, excuse me, international connections. Morris Dees and J. Richard Cohen of the Southern Poverty Law Center also writes in the New York Times uh, article, Racists Without Borders, that, quote, Americans tend to view attacks like the mass murder in Charleston as isolated hate crimes, the work of a deranged racist or a group of zealots lashing out in anger unconnected to a broader movement. This view we can no longer afford to indulge. When, according to survivors, Mr. Roof told the victims at the prayer meeting that black people were, quote, taking over the country, he was expressing sentiments that unite white nationalists from the United States and Canada to Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. Unlike those of the civil rights era, whose main goal was to maintain Jim Crow in the American South, today's white supremacists don't see borders. They see a white tribe under attack by people of color across the globe. The end of white rule in Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, and South Africa, they believe, foreshadowed an apocalyptic future for all white people, a white genocide that must be stopped before it's too late. End of quote. The internationalization of terrorism is not a foreign theory in today's social media world. Dees and Cohen will be speaking at a conference in Budapest about this transnational white supremacism that is emerging as the world grows more connected technologically. The message of white genocide is spreading. Also, David J. Whitaker's terrorism, understanding the global threat, gives another view. Clearly, our rush to forgive this mass murderer within 96 hours of this supreme tragedy is misguided, anti-human, and does not allow for properly grieving the fallen. 
as perfectly scripted, displaying the permanent effectiveness of Christian acculturation on the Sunday, the Sunday, June 21st, 2015 morning services of Mother Emanuel Church, the black Christians out-Christianed their white brothers and sisters. Before the morning sermon, the presiding elder, Reverend Norvell Goff Sr., found it necessary to thank the local, state, and federal law enforcement agencies for, for doing their job. He also stated, quote, a lot of folks expected us to do something strange and break out in a riot. Well, they just don't know us. We are people of faith, end quote. I find this statement inappropriate, insensitive, and ahistorical, implying, whether he meant it or not, that the recent uprising and rebellions in Ferguson, New York, Cleveland, and other parts of the nation were riots and did not include black people of faith and that somehow they were strange in their social, political, and economic activism. Informed people do not riot against injustice or white terrorism. They study, organize, and strategically struggle at all levels, in the streets, on the campus, in front of the White House, and in corporate boardrooms. Dylan Roof stated his stated intentions were to start a race war, and informed black leadership understands that we cannot pray this away or appeal to any law enforcement agency that all across the country, including Charleston, has been seriously compromised. To label black reaction to murder, terrorism, deep unemployment, substandard housing, etc., is as riot is to blame the victim. The book Taking Bullets. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Dan in Granby, Mass. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today? One thing that I'm really concerned with right now is with Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. I mean, I wouldn't begrudge them if they wanted to run for president, if that's what they want to do. But one thing that I respect or what I value about Elizabeth Warren particularly is that she's been a really solid, sort of unyielding, progressive voice. Yes. And I think that if she or even Kamala Harris, anybody who runs for president, she's going to have to tack to the center a little bit. I don't think so. Oh, I mean, yeah. Give, yeah. Me, give me one okay. issue. Give me one issue, yeah, Dan, yeah. where you don't think that her position is in the center. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. Um, can't tell you that, but it just seems... Then what does that mean? I mean, you know, 70% of Americans want Medicare for all. 52% of Republicans want Medicare for all. That's the center, okay. right? So all more right. than 70% of Americans want Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid strengthened. That's the center. Okay. More than, yeah. Well, more than 60% of Americans are opposed to the international trade deals we've had, which is part of why Donald Trump's sitting in the White House right now. That's yeah, the center. Yeah. I can't think of a single position that Bernie or Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris, comprehensive immigration reform, majority, you know, well over 60% of Americans want comprehensive immigration reform. And it passed the Senate, you know, with almost 80 votes. Uh, it's just the Paul uh -huh. Ryan wouldn't allow a vote in the House. These okay. are the centrist positions. And it makes me crazy when I hear people like Stephanie Rule and others in the media say, oh, well, you know, these liberal positions are too far out there. They've got to go to the center. Well, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean that you're yeah. opposed to Medicare for all? Why would you do that? It's going to save the country billions of dollars and it's going to cover everybody. Does it mean that you're opposed to bringing jobs back to the United States? I don't get it. So let's check in with Talk Media News and find out what's going on in the world today. This report brought to you by GoatsForTheOldGoat.com and the new book, Loving What You Do by Ellen Ratner. And on the line with us is the author of that very book, Ellen really interesting is that Interpol, which is actually the International Police Agency, elected Kim Jong-Yang 
from South Korea over the pre- uh, presumed front runner from Russia because they were fearful that he would do the Kremlin's bidding. Wow. So that's very interesting. Also, Mike Espy. I, Alan, um, if, I, if I may, do you know if, if the uh, Obama, or excuse me, if the Trump administration took a, took a position on that? They have not said a word publicly, nor, you know, to the press, so we just don't know. And, of course, we do know that there are not many. uh, The president speaks to people, but we do know that the press secretary rarely holds briefings. Yeah, so I'm guessing it was probably the European countries that that pushed this. Okay, I'm sorry, back to the news. Okay, Uh, Mike Espy, uh, who was an administration official under the Obama administration, he actually had a debate with Cindy Hyde-Smith, but what's interesting... This is, this is uh, Lynch and Cindy, right? The, the woman who talked about This is Lynch about. and yeah. Cindy, who said yeah. she would be, it wanted to be basically in the front row if there was a public hanging. Right. Well, we do know that Walmart pulled out its uh, $2,000 contribution. They very well may have given it to Mike Espy as well, because that's how these corporations do. But also AT&T, Pfizer, Google, and uh, I think three other corporations pulled out their money and want their money back. Hmm. Interesting. From Mike Espy. So that's very interesting. Also, the former president, Obama, visited the Chicago Food Bank. He volunteered. He bagged groceries. He said that racism and hate were plaguing the national uh, viewpoint at this point, which I don't disagree with. Amen. Uh, Okay. Also, the acting Justice Department head, Matthew Whitaker, got $1.2 million over three years, but he did get that kind of money, for running the Foundation for Accounting, uh, Accounting and Civic um, Trust, better known as FACT, and he was the only employee. Whoa. So <laughs> he wrote himself, the only employee writes himself a check for $1.2 bucks, and now or he's... Or his board wrote him a check, or somebody wrote him a check for that kind of money. Yeah, and now he's the uh, acting AG. That's bizarre. Is this one of these Coke-backed organizations, or do we not know? Well, we don't actually know. I mean, that, that doesn't mean we won't know eventually, but we don't know currently. So this is a dark money group, too, that he's in with. Oh, it's definitely a dark money group. I doubt he's going to enforce the laws against dark money. <laughs> Amazing. Oh, Ellen Renner. Ellen, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And, and you uh, too. I love to show Lean and everybody else. Um, Thank you. Yeah, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so Thank much you. for being with us. Ellen Ratner, talkmedianews.com, goatsfortheoldgoat.com, and loving what you do. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. Bill in Clifton, New Jersey. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Yeah, hi, Tom. By coincidence, when you had that filmmaker on last, I was reading a quote from Voltaire. Every man is guilty of all the good he didn't do. Wow. And uh, I think that says a lot. I was surprised when I heard about Marbury versus Madison with uh, Whitaker and that you kind of agree on the same level. Do you know his reasoning behind being against Marbury versus Madison? I don't, but there, you know, what I can tell you is that this, the modern day conservative movement to dis, and for people who don't know what we're talking about, Bill, let me just do a a 30 second history lesson. Um, The Supreme Court was 
put together as a co-equal branch along with the executive and the legislative branches of government in the Constitution. Article 1 is the House and Senate. Article 2 is the presidency. Article 3 is the judiciary. So it was the third among equals, right, the least among equals. And in fact, in Article 3, it even says that they're subject to the regulation and to exceptions as defined by Congress. So they're actually subordinate to Congress. This is how it was understood by the founders and framers. This is how Alexander Hamilton talks about it in Federalist Number 78 and 79. You know, it's all right there. So um, in 1803, in this case, uh, in Marbury versus Madison, uh, Chief Justice John Marshall, who was Thomas Jefferson's number one political opponent, said, the Supreme Court has final say over legislation. We can strike down laws passed by Congress and signed by the president. And Jefferson said, no, you can't. That's totally wrong. And they did it anyway, and he couldn't stop them because they ruled in his favor. So he didn't have any kind of standing to challenge the decision. And Marbury versus Madison has become the basis of what we call judicial review and judicial supremacy, where you've got nine unelected people in black robes who literally are in some cases, rewriting modern-day legislation. So to the issue of why right-wingers are concerned about Marbury, I'm concerned about Marbury in this historical context, and I, I agree with Jefferson's analysis that, that a, an unelected court can become a despotic institution and needs to be regulated by Congress. doesn't mean that, that I, I'm in favor of totally wiping away judicial review. I think you know, there's somebody has to d decide something. But, but where it came in the modern conservative movement was out of the Brown versus Board of Education decision. That was, you find, if you go back and read the, the, the writings, and, and Phyllis Schlafly, you know, she's passed away now, but she was a regular on our program for many, many years. She and I would have these long conversations. She's a constitutional scholar herself and a lawyer. She would be right up front. It was after the Brown versus Board decision that forced integration in public schools in the United States and ended uh, separate but equal, overturned Plessy versus Ferguson, that right-wingers started talking about how the Supreme Court should not have this kind of power. And then it was after Roe v. Wade in 73 that it went from being a few eccentric people on the fringes like her. And uh, I, I don't recall if Bork was taking that position or not, but there were there were a number of kind of they were considered deep thinkers right in, in the very hard right movement who uh, were taking this position that, you know, judicial supremacy is the wrong thing. So that's where it started. Did I answer your question, Bill? thought that they would enumerate it in the Constitution since they put the judiciary last in terms of power. I think of it more as like rock, paper, scissors, not co-equal branches. And yeah. uh, that they define their own power, not enumerated in the Constitution. In the very least, it should have been amended or something to reflect that. But it's backwards to make people pass laws that hurt people that have to be struck down later. You yeah. should get the Supreme Court in the beginning defining what is a constitutional law to pass. It's well, then then they're regulating the legislature and see the framers, actually, the people who wrote the Constitution. They wanted the legislature, which is directly responsible to the people, to regulate the court. And you will find that in Article 3, Section 2. The Supreme Court shall operate, in fact, all the federal courts, shall operate under regulations as defined by Congress. Bill, great question. With regard to Whitaker, I'm guessing he's just echoing Phyllis Schlafly, you know, that doesn't think that the Supreme Court should be able to stop you know, separate but equal, and he doesn't think that the Supreme Court should be able to make it legal to get an abortion. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for being with us. Don't forget, get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 